When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It is not a question of will a federal U.S. government shutdown happen. It is how long will the shutdown last? The lead starts right now. So House Speaker Kevin McCarthy could not even deliver a spending bill to be rejected by the Senate. This afternoon, 21 House Republicans voted against the bill he put forward. And now McCarthy's dilemma, will he cut a deal with Democrats to get the government up and running and risk losing his job? Or will he make a sacrifice to prevent the government shutdown and help federal workers keep their paychecks? And New York City under a state of emergency, more than a month's worth of rain in a few hours, creating a life-threatening situation. Plus... A major arrest in the murder of rapper Tupac Shakur, 27 years after he was gunned down on the Vegas Strip. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our politics lead. Utter dysfunction among House Republicans means the United States is likely headed for another government shutdown. This afternoon, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy suffered another embarrassing loss as his caucus failed to pass a short-term spending bill to keep the government open. There are now just under 32 hours left for any kind of deal. And frankly, the reality is bleak because any deal has to pass both the Republican-controlled House and the Democratic-controlled Senate. The Senate already put together a bipartisan deal to try to avoid a shutdown, but House Republicans threw cold water on that plan, only for party infighting today to sink all of their proposals as well. Now, you might be thinking, wait, Didn't Democrats, Republicans, and the White House agree to a budget deal earlier this year? And yes, yes, they did. But Speaker McCarthy then walked away from that deal because of pressure from his right flank. So where does that leave us now? Well, more than 3 million federal workers and active duty troops will immediately feel the effects of any shutdown. Some federal employees will have to stay on the job without getting paid. Others will be furloughed. Union leaders say many of these workers live paycheck to paycheck, and there could be drastic impacts across the country, not just for them, but for you and your family as well. Hundreds of TSA agents called out from work during the 2019 shutdown, leading to significant delays and longer wait times at airports. Government agencies might have to stop inspecting some food and some drinking water. Low-income families could lose access to the government assistance upon which they rely for food. But do not worry your members of Congress will continue to be paid. I do not want you to worry about them. Members of Congress make $174,000 a year. Speaker McCarthy makes $223,500 a year. And those paychecks will keep coming. U.S. service members, no. Border Patrol agents, no. Capitol Police, no. And some Republicans are even acknowledging how this might look to you. Yeah, been a, very much a critic of our of our work ethic here in Washington D.C. You know, we we start meetings around 10:30 and take a couple hours for lunch and and kick off at about 4:30 and then tell tell America we've been working hard when they've been working all day and and it and frankly it disgusts me. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live for us on Capitol Hill. Melanie, Speaker McCarthy is huddling with Republicans behind closed doors right now. 
about what comes next? <laughs> well, Jake, Kevin McCarthy is the only one who knows the answer to that question because even his own leadership team tells us they are in the dark about what the next steps are here. But my colleague Haley Talbot did catch up with Speaker Kevin McCarthy a little bit ago, and he said, it's not the end yet. I have other ideas. So presumably, Kevin McCarthy will reveal these mystery ideas during this closed-door conference meeting, which is just getting underway. But the reality is, Jake, he does not have a lot of options because he is still refusing to work with Senate Democrats. That is something that his hardliners had warned that if he reaches across the aisle, they will force a vote to remove him. So Kevin McCarthy is standing firm that he will not work with Democrats who have their own bipartisan plan in the Senate. And then we've also seen that his effort to work just among Republicans has yielded little to no results. They defeated this bill on the House floor today with 21 Republicans voting against it. That is a pretty sizable block of Republicans who are against this short-term CR that was already loaded up with conservative priorities. So it is a question of what comes next. We're hearing that some lawmakers are pushing for them to stay in session, to keep voting on those long-term spending bills. But again, those are going nowhere in the Senate and would do nothing to avoid a government shutdown now just one day away, Jake. All right, Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill. Thanks. In a moment, I'm going to speak to the leader of a union for hundreds of thousands of federal workers. But first, let's bring in Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado. He's here in studio with me. Thanks so much for being here. So House Republicans are meeting right now as we speak, a meeting that your House Speaker Kevin McCarthy convened. Um, you voted against uh, the bill that Speaker McCarthy put forward. Uh, why did you do that? Simple, Jake. Uh, we've got to stop the pattern that we've been uh, on for so long. Uh, every year, we end up with a bill right before a shutdown or right before a, a default on a, on a debt ceiling. Um, I'm voting to make sure that we pass all 12 appropriations bills. We go meet with the Senate. We, we agree on those 12 appropriations bills and move forward. The idea that um, a group of four leaders on either side of the Capitol building can come up with spending bills without the input of 435, 535 members is just wrong. So what do you think McCarthy is telling the House Republicans right now? And what would you say to him? If you were there or when you go there. Well, I think this was a uh, this, this was a no confidence vote. This this was a vote where people didn't have faith that Kevin McCarthy was going to do the right thing. We passed a bill on the debt ceiling. He went and negotiated a significantly higher number with with President Biden. People don't have faith that when it comes time to negotiate, he's going to do the right thing with the with Senator Schumer uh, over in the Senate. So right now, what he is telling, I believe, is telling Republicans is that we will uh, go to work for the next two weeks. We will pass as many appropriations bills as we can, and we'll deal with this shutdown um, towards the end of next week, uh, or I'm sorry, the following week before uh, federal workers are going to receive their paychecks uh, again. So, so he's saying the, shut, the government's going to shut down and then we'll just keep doing the appropriations bills and keep sending them to the Senate? You think that's what he's saying? I, I know that's what he's saying. And what's sad is we knew this was happening in June. We could have started passing appropriations bills months ago. We didn't need this brinkmanship that we have right now. So you voted, I mean... It's a weird situation we have here because even if what you voted against had passed the House, the Senate was not going to vote for it. The Senate was not going to take it up. So this is all just kind of a weird kabuki theater because Kevin McCarthy walked away from a deal that you, you opposed also, um, but now he has nothing. Um, but what's your message to the private in the Army, an E1, who makes $23,000 a year, whose now is not going to be made until you and your colleagues... Get your act together. She just got her last paycheck and told the government shutdown is over. Let's assume that she agrees with everything you're saying, but she also just wants to be paid 
And she needs to be paid to do her job. And she will be paid on October 13th because the shutdown will be over. And uh, what's more important is that when it's time for her to receive Social Security, it'll be there. When it's time for her to receive Medicare, it will be there. And when it's time to pay back this $36 trillion of debt that we're going to have at the end of next year, we will do it in a responsible way. But the solution to the bigger problems that you're talking about, and you and I have talked about this before, the idea that as a government, we spend more than we take in. The idea that some, some other people are voting against the bill uh, because of the mess at the border, that there's a border crisis. Also, let's just posit that that's true and more needs to be done there. This situation is not helping to solve either of those problems. This government shutdown. I mean, what needs to be done is Democrats, you need 10 Democrats in the Senate to stand with you on something and pass that that will then force their hand and then force President Biden's hand. Yeah, to me, Jake, it's more of an institutional uh, solution that we need to look at. And we need to make sure that every committee has a subcommittee that's looking at spending in those agencies. We need to actually address the the, the um, elephant in the room, and not just because I'm a Republican, but the elephant in the room uh, that, that uh, these uh, Social Security and Medicare are costing us so much. We have avoided those tough issues because we're afraid of what the voters are gonna do in the next election. We can't keep avoiding those issues. Um, Congressman Matt Gates, your colleague from Florida, says that you know, he's going to force a vote uh, on uh, ousting the Speaker, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, next week. There's a lot of talk out there about other possible replacements like Tom Emmer of Minnesota and others. Uh, will you vote? If, that come, if he offers a, a motion to vacate, to, to get rid of Speaker McCarthy, would you vote to support that? Well, I think a lot of people voted today, um, as I said earlier, um, as a vote of no confidence. I will not support something until I see what's going to happen in the next five, six days. So in other words, you wouldn't vote. So that's 21 votes. You think the 21 votes against this bill were essentially 21 votes, no confidence against McCarthy, but you can't, you won't commit to voting against him until you maybe know who the replacement would be? Well, I want to know what his plan is. And, and, uh, and just, just doing more appropriations bills isn't the plan. What's the CR going to look like? Um, and if he passes what the Senate sends over um, that has uh, uh, various aid packages associated with it, um, that's something he's going to need Democrat help for, and that's going to be a, a strike against him. All right. Com Republican Congressman Ken Buck, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Let's bring in an Everett Kelly. He's the president of the American Federation of Government Employees. That's a union that represents 750,000 U.S. government workers from uh, a nurse at your local VA to a park ranger uh, at your local uh, national park. Um, so, Mr. Kelly, you, you just heard uh, Congressman Buck says, uh, say he thinks Republicans will let the government shut down and then try to get a deal made to reopen it before federal workers miss a paycheck by October 13th. What's your response to that? I think that's absurd uh, because, you know, I think that there is no reason why the government has to shut down. Uh, I remain hopeful. Uh, I think that, you know, it's likely I, I believe that, but I also think it's avoidable. I think that uh, the Congress need to get the act together and get a bill passed and get funding for this country because I don't think that it sends a message to the rest of the world that our Congress cannot get themselves together and, and, and fund the government, which is the richest country in the world. Explain to our viewers how a shutdown might impact your members or will impact your members, because I guess you've been through this a few times. Now. Absolutely. Well, you know, I have to think about uh, the members that I represent. Uh, I think about last night I had a call with thousands of uh, members. Um, and they was talking about the types of issues they would face, you know, if an in event of a government shutdown, uh, such as I talked to one particular uh, person about, they were um, 
sing them all. And they said, now I got to go and explain to my children that I would not be able to do the thing that we had planned because the government is going to shut down. Yeah. I, I talked to one particular um, law enforcement officer who makes less than $50,000 a year, has five children, and says, I can't see how, if I miss one paycheck, how I'll be able to adequately care for my five children. I mean, it's just more and more of this type of thing that we keep hearing over and over again. When you see uh, federal employees shedding tears because they know what they went through the last shutdown, you know, it's a terrible feeling for me. I care. I genuinely care. And I want to make sure uh, that we uh, make the whole country aware of the fact that this government do not have to shut down. Yeah, my mom uh, was a uh, nurse at the VA in Philadelphia. Tell so, for me. Well, I mean, the other thing is, like, what a lot of people, well, they probably know, is that these are not highly compensated people in a lot of instances. Absolutely. Matter of fact, uh, you know, some of our members make on an average of about thirty dollars to $4,000 a year. Yeah. Okay, and, 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 and our people are no different. The people that I represent are no different from the rest of the U.S. You know, the uh, uh, 60% of the uh, American workers live from paycheck to paycheck, yeah. 60%, okay? And and our members are no different. They live from paycheck to paycheck, and one missed paycheck can mean a lot. Now, you imagine... It can mean a car that, that is repossessed. It can mean uh, an eviction from your home. I mean, it can miss all, all sorts of things. All sorts of things. I mean, just imagine, and I ask the Congress to imagine this for themselves. Payday come, but there's no paycheck. And if there's no paycheck, in some instances, there's no food to put on the table. Mm. In some instances, the cupboard is bare. And that's something that I think everyone needs to think about. No yeah. paycheck, no food. The human cost of this. Ever Kelly, thank you so much. The Republican frustration is getting louder. There's another name party members are blaming for this hot mess. It's not Kevin McCarthy. We're going to talk about that. And breaking news just in the first guilty plea in one of the major cases involving Donald Trump. This is the Fulton County case alleging a conspiracy to steal Georgia's electoral votes. We're back in a moment. We have some breaking news for you now. The very first defendant has pleaded guilty in the Georgia election subversion case, that case that includes Donald Trump in its long list of defendants. Scott Hall today agreed to take a deal with prosecutors. He pleaded guilty to five counts in the case. CNN's Nick Valencia joins us live. Nick, what exactly is Hall admitting that he did? Well, Scott Hall is the former Georgia bail bondsman who was part of this alleged scheme to illegally access voting data equipment in rural Coffee County. Uh, that bail bondsman, Scott Hall, was caught on surveillance video going inside a restricted area and part of this alleged scheme by Trump operatives to prove that there was voter fraud, widespread voter fraud in Georgia. And just a moment ago, Jake, in an impromptu hearing in front of the presiding judge, Scott McAfee, Hall and his attorney entered this guilting plea, admitting that there was a factual basis for the charges against him. Now, he admitted to five counts. He was charged with seven counts. He admitted to five counts. All of them are misdemeanors. Each of them carries 12 months of probation. So he's going to be on five months of probation as well as face a $5,000 fine. Uh, there's also several other conditions as part of this. He's not going to be allowed to communicate with other uh, defendants. Uh, that's part of it. He's going to have to write a letter of apology as well as 200 hours of community service. But this is very big news for a case that we've been watching closely over the last several months. 
months. Scott Hall, the first person to turn himself in to the Fulton County Jail after this sprawling indictment was leveled by the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Now Scott Hall, the first person to take a plea deal and cut that deal with the Fulton County District Attorney's Office. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia, thanks so much. CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig joins us now. Ellie, are you surprised? Already a guilty plea in the case. Well, Jake, it is quick to get a guilty plea. It's definitely a win for the Fulton County District Attorney. But when you charge 19 defendants at once, this is what happens. They start taking care of their own interests. They start taking pleas. They start turning on each other. And I think the big question here is in the course of this deal that Scott Hall has now struck with prosecutors, will he agree to testify? Typically, when you see this kind of consideration given, when someone who was looking at prison time, as Scott Hall was, is given a probation deal, that involves testifying. And the person who needs to be most worried about this in this case is Sidney Powell, because Scott Hall is charged in the scheme to access voting equipment. And Sidney Powell is also charged in that count. So if he's providing testimony, then she's going to be implicated. And I would think, Ellie, that being the first defendant to agree to a deal with prosecutors has its advantages. Absolutely. We prosecutors always tell defendants in a multi-defendant case like this, first one in the door gets the best deal because you need that information most. It's a buyer-seller market. It's a supply and demand issue. And when you have nobody on board cooperating, you need them most as a prosecutor. So here Scott Hall stands to get the best deal, the biggest benefit, because he's providing them with that first break into that world of information that they need to know. All right, Ellie Honig, thank you so much with the breaking news. I appreciate it. Let's go Back to our politics lead and the dysfunction in Washington, even worse than what you're used to. We are less than 32 hours away from a likely shutdown of the U.S. federal government. And the hole Speaker Kevin McCarthy dug for himself seems to only be getting deeper. Florida Congressman Matt Gaetz is now reaching out to House Democrats, including Progressive Caucus Chairwoman, uh, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, To help him, asked McCarthy as Speaker. Politico was reporting that Jayapal is telling Gates, quote, we're not planning to save McCarthy. Uh, Let's bring in our panel, Democratic strategist Nayara Huck and Lonnie Chen, a fellow with the Hoover Institution. And and Lonnie, uh, Congressman Gates reaching out to Democrats to oust McCarthy. At the same time, Gates was threatening to oust McCarthy if McCarthy worked with Democrats uh, to keep the government open. Yeah, it's an unholy alliance now that's been created. The funny thing about this is this is going to be the shutdown over absolutely nothing, right? And Matt Gates is one of these nihilists who's basically decided he's going to shut it down because he feels like shutting it down. It's not like they're getting concessions. It's not like they're getting closer to policy aims. This is really just about uh, the ambitions of a few people to do more so that more people recognize who they are and now reaching out to Democrats, not even moderate Democrats, but progressive Democrats, mind you, to oust the only person who probably could do this job right now. It's ludicrous. And, and uh, it's not just Lonnie saying this, uh, Nair, as you know, uh, Congressman Mike Rogers of, I believe, Alabama told Politico, quote, there is something between them and I don't know what it is. It's not policy driven. It's personal. Talking about Gates and Speaker McCarthy, um, we've had Uh, shutdowns in the past over the border wall. We've had shutdowns in the past about Obamacare. I'm not quite certain what this one is about, although it's certainly the animus between Gates and McCarthy is definitely a role, playing and a role. It's going to be really challenging to explain to the American public why the government is shutting down. They are the party in power right now in Congress, and they cannot have a message about helping the American people at this time. 90% of Americans have savings. 
Those same people cannot cover $1,000 in emergencies. I had a nephew hit me up this week trying to figure out uh, what was going on with the shutdown. He's a tech sergeant in the U.S. Air Force. He has two children. He said, Auntie, how long is it going to go for? I said, you should prepare for two weeks. Are you going to be okay? He goes, I don't know, but we'll figure it out. I had no answer for him other than it's football season. They're playing political football with your paycheck. Yeah, and, and it's clear um, there are Republicans in the House getting frustrated with Matt Gates, although he's not the... I mean, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, authors of of this uh, shutdown. But take a listen to New York Congressman uh, Mike Lawler. There's only one person to blame for any potential government shutdown, and that's Matt Gates. He's not a conservative Republican. He's a charlatan. And as far as I'm concerned, when you're working with Democrats to try to vacate the speaker, you're a joke. Do you think Gates is entirely to blame? I don't know about entirely. He's certainly one of the prime instigators here. But there's a group. I mean, to, to think about the Freedom Caucus as a unified block, I think is a little misleading. Gates, not, Gates is not in the Freedom I, Caucus. I mean, but but to, they've, there's been this blame that's right. been ascribed to this group of hard right legislators. The reality is you have a subset right. uh, of this group. Matt Gates is probably one of the folks who certainly is in a leading role. But it takes more than just one person in my view, to make what we've got right now. Matt Gates is a principal instigator in this, but the notion that he alone is responsible, I think, is probably a little bit generous to him. And now, Yara, um, how, how do you think Democrats should play this? Just sit back and, and let them kill each other? Listen, there's not much power that Democrats have in Congress right now other than standing up for the principles and ethics and values of the institution. So they are. They're going to let uh, the Republicans who wanted the speakership so badly uh, manage this and figure this out on their own. One of the things that's so weird about the shutdown is even this bill that failed, that McCarthy put forward, was not going to avert the shutdown. I mean, that's what's so strange about it, right? McCarthy had cut a deal with the Senate and the White House in, I think, May. And then he was getting pressure from his hard right caucus that he was agreeing to too much spending. And so he walked away from the deal that he himself agreed to. And now he's in the spot. He puts forward a spending bill that the Senate was not going to take up. I mean, none of this was going to work, and it's, it's all ridiculous. Well, the challenge is most people don't understand the Rules Committee and how things actually right. go between the House and the Senate and the deals that have been cut, and McCarthy isn't that type of leader to go past that misunderstanding. What do you mean so by that type of leader? He has not been able to build a coalition within his own party. His agenda is about staying in power. Right? Yeah. He was willing to go through more than a dozen votes just to be speaker. The fact that he had to go through so many indicates that he did not have a coalition that could actually make decisions. Uh, yeah. Lonnie, just a quick question here. Speaker McCarthy, weakest speaker you've ever seen, or, or what do you think? I think he's been dealt the hardest hand of any speaker I've ever seen. I don't think it's fair to say he's the weakest speaker. I think, in fact, again, he's the only person in the current situation that can even deal with this group. And we'll see if he can. All right, Lonnie being very charitable today on Friday. Lonnie Chen and now you're a Huck. Thanks so much. We'll bring you back later in the show to talk more. Coming up next, the state of emergency right now in New York. Basements underwater, roads washed away. The rare weather event unfolding in a city not quite used to flooding. New York Governor Kathy Hochul will be here. Stay with us. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Oh my goodness. That's a passenger's understandable reaction when floodwaters filled the New York City bus. Just one of hundreds of scenes like that across the region as a month's worth of rain fell in a matter of hours. Fire crews rescued people from stranded vehicles and high water filled parts of New York's LaGuardia Airport. CNN's Polo Sandoval is in Brooklyn, New York. Polo, New York City remains under a state of emergency at this hour. New Jersey's governor has also just declared a state of emergency for his state across the river. And Jake, when you get such an incredible amount of rain in such a short period of time, this is the result. You basically see parts of the city that had been flooded earlier this morning. What looks like a rushing creek behind me, Jake, is actually the entrance to Brooklyn's Prospect Park. I show you these pictures because this is actually goes to show that even now that we do have at least a small break in the rain, all of this water is essentially draining out of the park and spilling onto the roadway. The reason why I show you this, Jake, is because it really does speak to how treacherous travel still is in and around New York City, particularly in Queens and in Brooklyn, which is where we have heard from New York City officials and also state authorities warning people, especially those living in basement apartments, to still be on alert, especially into tonight. As inconvenient as it is, though, Jake, it has not proven deadly yet, with authorities here having no reports of any fatalities or injuries. Yeah. All right, Paula Sandoval, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss New York's uh, Governor Kathy Hochul, a Democrat. Governor, you warned New Yorkers should expect heavy rain and flooding to continue throughout the night. What are your biggest concerns right now? Jake, my biggest concern right now is that people will see a little lull in the rain and feel confident and go out in their vehicles. The number one cause of death during a massive flooding event, and this is an epic event. This is historic, and uh, we're still in the throes of it is that they'll go out in their vehicles and get swept up in these roads that turn into rivers and there'll be loss of life. That is the number one reason people lose their lives and people are not listening to us. As I'm watching the videos of the cars filling up with, uh, you know, the vehicles filling up with people and people going out in the street. So that's my concern. Uh, we have been on top of this even before the first drop fell because we know how to do this. We've sent out warnings. Thank God it was a Friday because so many people did not go to work today. They stayed home. And my other concern was getting school children home safely today because the subway system has been so disruptive. In New York City, a lot of children, especially teenagers, take the subway to get to school. So we've been working on getting buses, working with the city of New York to make sure they get home safely. Now we're concerned about the commute. We have a massive disruption in the, in the train lines heading north, Metro North. Grand Central Station is overflowing with people trying to find a path outward out. And we're trying to work with the MTA to get more buses. We have mm -hmm. so many buses.
are now functioning. So that's a safer route than taking the subway. So a lot of lot going on. We have some rescues going on and people in places like Nassau County, Elmont community has a mm -hmm. uh, nursing home that was water. We have, I just spoke to all the mayors in Westchester. There's eight to 10 feet of water in people's basements. So this is going to go on for the night, but the main point I want to make, it is a dangerous situation. It is a flash flooding threat. And the reality is that those flash floods have arrived. And so uh, people need to be aware, especially people live in basements. That is the most vulnerable place as you start seeing the water creep up. Don't wait till it's over your knees or up to your waist to escape. You must escape as soon as possible. I was a governor for literally a week a couple of years ago. First major hurricane and the loss of life was cataclysmic or people were trapped in their own homes. So that's the warning I wanted to give to New Yorkers yeah. tonight. So New York City Mayor Eric Adams uh, defended his administration's response today amid criticism that he did not do enough in advance of the storm or respond quickly uh, enough. Um, are you satisfied uh, with how New York City has handled this? We have been working closely with New York City. Our teams have been engaged since the first forecast thought that this could be a record-setting storm. And so our emergency management team works with their with FDNY, the NYPD, their emergency operations. So, so we are joined at the hip to make sure that they know they have the resources of the state to support them. So, uh, the mayor and I did an event together this morning. We've been on the phone and communication. So as this unfolds, it folds, uh, it's always you know interesting to be able to point fingers. My job and the mayor's job is to just make sure that we protect public life and property. Subway uh, services disrupted and water made its way into 150 of New York City's schools. Um, is, is, are you going to be able to fix this quickly enough for... for uh, the subway service and schools to be oper operative uh, next week? Well, the schools, we, we were able to get the children out of the schools safely, which was the number one concern. And basically it is, I've deployed pumps all over the city from the state to help the city uh, with the with their efforts to dry out these schools. So I believe that they'll be in good place for next year, but we'll wait to, or next week. So we'll wait to see what the uh, the school's leadership says about that. With respect to the subways, uh, people really need to be contacting our MTA website, check it out, read, go look on uh, for unfolding developments. Literally, I just got off the phone with Jana Libra, the CEO of the MTA, and there are some updates that are a little bit more positive because basically, my last briefing a half an hour ago, we're looking at almost a full shutdown of the public transit system in the New York City area during this commute. So plenty of buses. We encourage people to stay away from the subway trains because you don't know what you're going to encounter. Um, some of our Metro North lines starting from Grand Central have been literally flooded. Uh, that's something that happens periodically when we have these massive events, but it will stop you from getting home safely unless you take a bus. So more to be reported on that in the next half hour when we give another briefing, but it's it's a very much an unfolding situation yeah. and very dynamic. And people to make sure they have current information before they before they venture out trying to get home for the weekend. All right, New York's uh, Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul, thanks so much for the update. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up next, the details just in from police as they make a major arrest in the 1996 murder of rap star Tupac Shakur as he left a boxing match on the Vegas Strip. In our pop culture lead, a potentially major break in a case that changed hip-hop. An arrest has been made in connection with the murder 
of actor and rapper Tupac Shakur. The rapper was gunned down in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas in 1996. This was seen as something of a watershed moment. It defined the feud between East Coast and West Coast rappers. And it was fueled even further by the murder of Biggie Smalls, or the notorious B.I.G., a year later. This morning, Las Vegas police arrested Dwayne Davis, known as Keefe D., in connection with Tupac's killing. CNN's Josh Campbell is here to bring us the latest details. Josh, what are we learning about the suspect? Well, this is someone who had been known to police for quite some time, but it wasn't until recently that uh, they had enough evidence that they believed to move forward with charges. And this suspect, as you mentioned, Dwayne Keith Davis, uh, he was described as the shot caller of a, a gang here in Los Angeles. And this is where the timeline comes so important. What police announced is that back in 1996, nearly 30 years ago, uh, that at this uh, boxing match, Tupac Shakur and one of his associates had allegedly assaulted Davis's his nephew, and then police allege that Davis then orchestrated this retaliatory type of uh, attack afterwards, actually going so far as to give someone a gun that was used in that uh, uh, alleged murder. And so again, all of this happening over the course of nearly three decades, police gathering this information, conducting numerous interviews. They say that a grand jury has been impaneled for quite some time going over this evidence. And today, police announcing this man now arrested. He has also been charged uh, with murder. But it wasn't until 2018 that this case was reinvigorated as additional information came to light related to this homicide, specifically Dwayne Davis's own admissions to his involvement in this homicide investigation that he provided to numerous different media outlets. And that, that point that we just heard there was also so important because they're saying that essentially it wasn't that something that this person tried to hide his alleged involvement, but he was out there talking. He actually wrote a memoir in which he detailed a life as a street gang member. He detailed uh, the, the uh, events surrounding the murder of Tupac Shakur. Two months ago, authorities went to his house in Nevada and searched it, carting out all kinds of evidence, including computers, including phones, including that memoir that I mentioned. And interestingly, and again, this you know doesn't seem to be uh, the crime of the century, this guy was out there saying that he was in the car that pulled alongside Tupac Shakur's car. One thing interestingly that he said was that he was in the front seat. He said that the shots came from the person in the back seat. He refused to say who that person was. What we did hear prosecutors say just a short time ago, Jake, is that under Nevada law, you don't have to actually be the person to pull the trigger in order to be charged with murder. So we're seeing a lot of these elements line up that leading to these charges today. And, and quickly, what's next in the case? Authorities say within a matter of days, this uh, defendant will be presented uh, before the court, before a judge. We don't know what type of uh, uh, plea he will enter, whether he will plead guilty or whether this will actually go to trial. Authorities say that they're ready for uh, any type of eventuality, but really the wheels of justice, at least for him, truly starting now with him in police custody. All right, Josh Campbell, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Another huge story today, the death of Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, the longest serving woman to ever serve in the U.S. Senate. Her death may create some contention in your home state of California. Stay with us. Back with our politics leader, you're looking at the U.S. Capitol's flags at half-staff in honor of the longest-serving female U.S. senator in American history, California's Dianne Feinstein, who died last night at the age of 90. CNN's David Chalian and Jamie Gangel are with me now. We have seen an outpouring of tributes for Senator uh, Feinstein and her indelible mark on politics. I wanted to bring up this remarkable moment from the Senate floor in 1993. It really 
it really says something very uh, special about her ability to be quick on her feet and show that she can do the job. She was just elected in 1992, so this is, one, this is her first year as a senator, that she can do the job just as well, if not better, than her male colleagues. So the gentlelady from California needs to become a little more familiar with firearms and their deadly characteristics. And I say that because it is... A personal privilege for a moment, please. Yes, certainly. I am quite familiar with firearms. I became mayor as a product of assassination. I'm aware of that. I found my assassinated colleague and put a finger through a bullet hole trying to get... I proposed gun control legislation in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I went through a recall on the basis of it. I was trained in the shooting of a firearm when I had terrorist attacks with a bomb at my house when my husband was dying when I had windows shot out. Mm -hmm. Senator, I know something about what firearms can do. Senator, I am not accusing you of not knowing. What I'm accusing you of is not broadening the issue to understand the debate. I think I think she made her point quite clear. I, I do hope that people remember that Diane Feinstein, the quick-witted, strong, uh, eloquent uh, advocate for her point of view, whether or not you agree with her on these issues, uh, and, and not more recent years. That is classic Diane Feinstein, and she was she, unflinching, fierce, direct, and and you saw it all there point of personal privilege. It's one of my favorite moments from, you know, all time in the Senate. I think what's also going to be missed about her, though, in the Senate is uh, she was a mentor. She was generous. Uh, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand told me a story when she was first elected to the Senate. She was really a very new member of Congress, and she wasn't sure what to do. And Dianne Feinstein took her to lunch and said, how can I help you? And uh, Senator Gillibrand said, well, I, you know, I really could use some advice. And Senator Feinstein gave her a memo, a very detailed memo. I'd like to know what was in it. She said it was confidential. But Senator Gillibrand describes it as one of the most generous and helpful things that anyone had ever done in her career. So, David, let's get to the crass politics of it. Uh, Gavin Newsom, the Democratic governor of California, now has a a seat to fill. Uh, He has publicly said, Newsom, that he plans to appoint a black woman to the role because uh, there is a chasm in the Senate uh, because Kamala Harris is now vice president and she she had a California Senate seat. He also said... And he didn't appoint a black woman to replace her. Right, for for, for Padilla. Padilla has a seat now. He said he also wants it to be a caretaker, not somebody who is going to... Uh, want to stay in that seat because there's an active Senate race going on right now. So that rules out uh, the mayor of Los Angeles, Karen Bass, because she would want to stay in the seat. It rules out Congresswoman Barbara Lee, who's running for the seat. It rules out Congresswoman Maxine Waters, who sure as hell would want to stay a United States senator if she were made one. What about somebody a little less well-known, such as California's current Secretary of State, Shirley Weber? Could that be a likely replacement, do you think? No doubt. She's, she is atop every list when you talk to anybody out in California. I don't know that she'll be who he appoints, but he did appoint her to Secretary of State because Alex Padilla was the Secretary of State. He appointed him to replace Kamala Harris. He received a ton of backlash because of the dearth of black women in the Senate that he wasn't replacing Harris with a black woman. And... 
uh, he appointed Weber to Padilla's seat as Secretary of State. So he's already appointed her once, and perhaps he'll appoint her again. By the way, she went on uh, to win north of 60% of the vote in California for her own term. And First her black right woman as Secretary, Secretary of State. State, yeah. Exactly. So, so I would definitely look at that. I think it is interesting that he has ruled out anybody who's currently running. He, he says he doesn't want to put his finger on the scale that there's going to be this primary, that there's, there is this process. Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee are running. And so he wants to rule them out to not give anyone uh, an advantage uh, as the state sorts out who they want their next senator to be. And, and Jamie, Senate Democrats now have an even slimmer razor-thin majority, 50 to 49 um, how critical is it that Newsom does this quickly? I would imagine he needs to do this in the next day or two, maybe. I, I think as soon as it is appropriate. Right, I mean, after she is, uh, well, I mean, she's, she's, she was Jewish, so the tradition would be that she gets buried within soon, within, 20, within 24 hours. In, in yeah. 24 hours. On the other hand, she's also a VIP. People are going to want to fly out um, for it. But I think that my guess would be days, David? That, yeah. That would so quickly. They need to get these votes. And one would think, David, that Newsom has been preparing for this. Yes, though I have, I have not seen any indication, nor do I have any reporting that says he has a list of already vetted people. So he will want to go through some kind of vetting process before he names them. All right, David Chalian and Jamie Gangel, uh, thank you so much. And of course, a sad day for her family, for her friends, for the U.S. Senate. And we are sending our condolences and our thoughts to all of you. Moments ago, Republican Congressman Ken Buck told me that today's failed vote in the House of Representatives was essentially a no-confidence vote on Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Up next, what McCarthy just told his Republican caucus in a closed-door meeting. Stay with us. Make sure we solve this problem. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the breaking news, the first guilty plea in the Fulton County, Georgia, election conspiracy case alleging efforts to steal Georgia's electoral votes. This guilty plea from bail bondsman Scott Hall, one of 18 co-defendants charged alongside Donald Trump. Plus, a fight over the home of glamorous actress Marilyn Monroe. Should this home be protected as an historic site or should it be knocked down to make room for new red-hot real estate? And leading this hour, the odds of a government shutdown are now higher than Willie Nelson taking a tour of Amsterdam. Only one day until the United States government runs out of funding and there is no clear path to a solution. Hours ago, a last-ditch measure to pass a stopgap bill failed in the House. 21 Republicans crossed over to vote with Democrats. Even House Republican leaders say they're, quote, in the dark about where to go from here. It's up to the speakers at House Republican Whip Tom Emmer of Minnesota. The shutdown will directly disrupt the lives of nearly 2.2 million Americans who are federal employees, and that's not even including active duty troops or any of their families. On average, federal workers earn between $55,000 and $65,000 a year. Thousands make closer to $15 an hour. Average pay for an Army staff sergeant with eight years' experience, $48,500 a year. That means most of these folks cannot afford to miss a payday. Perhaps this could be lost on the average member of Congress who makes $174,000 per year and who will, by the way, continue to be paid during the shutdown. So this will not impact their wallets and their purses, even if they are not doing their jobs. And many of the others are expected to keep doing theirs, of course. The longer this shutdown lasts, the more we're all going to feel the impacts. TSA agents, air traffic controllers might stop showing up to work. So perhaps you shouldn't get too attached to any flight plans you have. Transportation construction work could be put on hold. So have fun continuing to dodge those potholes. FDA food safety inspections might be disrupted. So 
Enjoy those hot dogs while you can. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill, where time to avoid a shutdown is running out. Manu, Speaker McCarthy meeting with House Republicans behind closed doors right behind you. Uh, What is he telling them? Is there any sort of plan? This is, after all, his job and in no small part, his fault. Yeah, look, he is just telling his colleagues right now, I'm told from people in the room, that there are no good options left. But he has not said what his preferred plan is, and that is the big question here. I'm told that he essentially laid out several things, ways they can go. They can move forward on a Republican plan to keep the government open, the same plan that failed just this afternoon when 21 House Republicans joined with Democrats to sink that measure over concerns from those hard-right members that the spending cuts were not deep enough. Democrats thought they were too deep, and and, and, and voted against that measure. He said they can bring that back up. Or he said they can simply extend current government funding with no other extraneous provisions attached and simply try to dare Democrats to vote against it. That is a, something that a lot of Republicans won't accept over here. And, and he also suggested that... that they could accept the Senate plan, which he has already said that he opposes because of his inclusion of Ukraine aid and his not inclusion of border security money. This all comes, Jake, as the tension was palpable among some of the Republicans in the aftermath of that failed vote, finger pointing among some of the more moderate members against the hardliners who brought that down. They killed the most conservative position we could take um, and then called themselves the real conservatives, which is like, make that make sense. Uh, there's only one person to blame for any potential government shutdown, and that's Matt Gates. He's not a conservative Republican. He's a charlatan. We will not pass a continuing resolution uh, on terms that continue America's decline. So then the question is, what is indeed next? The Senate is still moving along bipartisan lines to try to get a bill through. But, Jake, that may not be out of it, that chamber until potentially Monday, leaving it a couple of days after the government shutdown deadline and the House Speaker is still not embracing that plan. So just a lot of uncertainty and expectation that the government will indeed shut down over divisions among Republicans, not just in the House GOP, but House GOP and Senate GOP as the shutdown, if it happens, it could take, it could extend for some time. The only question also is how long? And, and Manu, I just want to underline this one point. Neither Speaker McCarthy nor Matt Gates, who are at odds here, neither of them is proposing anything that could get through the Senate and be signed by President Biden, right? There is there's no question about it. The bill that would have went, if it were approved in the House today, would have been rejected by the Senate. So therein lies the problem for Speaker McCarthy. If he were to move to try to cut a bipartisan deal, that threat to push him out of the speakership continues to linger over him, something that he fully recognizes. Even as he brushes that aside, people like Matt Gates warning that they will go after the speaker if he cuts a bipartisan deal. So the question is, Jake, does he go down that route? And will that risk of speakership all can play out here in the next few days? Yeah, all of this was eminently predictable as soon as he was elected speaker back in January. Manu Raju, thanks so much. With, with us now, Democratic Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina. Congressman, good to see you. Five days ago, and maybe you were just being kind, but five days ago you said a government shutdown was not a foregone conclusion, and you did not think we would get to the point of a shutdown. Uh, where are you today? Well, thank you very much for having me. Five days ago, it was not a foregone conclusion, even at the moment. It does not have to be. The fact of the matter is, I think the Senate is putting together a very good plan that if the Speaker were to sit down with the Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, and I'm sure 
he's got 150, 160 uh, people in this caucus. I think that uh, from the vote today, there was 198, 99 votes uh, that wanted to keep this government uh, open. And let's do a bipartisan piece of legislation. We can do that. Uh, all he's got to do is put the country above his politics. Yeah. His politics kind of dictate that he's got to get jerked around by 15 to 20 people. And the country dictates that we need to keep people working, keep people safe, and keep this country uh, moving forward. But this- the pro- the problem, as you know, sir, is that McCarthy agreed uh, as part of the condition of him becoming speaker to uh, one vote for a, a motion to vacate on the floor of the House, meaning Matt Gates, and he's threatened this many times, can go to the floor and, and offer a motion to vacate. And, and uh, he needs 218 votes to keep his job as speaker. And he might not have them. Unless Democrats were to vote for him for speaker. Would Democrats do that? Would you do that? Well, there are circumstances in which I could vote for him to maintain his speakership. A lot depends upon whether or not he is willing to put what the, the uh, Senate is doing on the floor. They have marked up to the agreement. We had an agreement back in the spring of the year. He knows what that agreement is. He made it with the president. And the Senate has been adhering to that agreement. The House is refusing to adhere to it. So put the Senate bill on the floor. Take care of Ukraine uh, funding, which we must do. Do what is necessary to protect people with these disasters that we need to face up to with these uh, wildfires, etc. And I do believe the Senate uh, is amenable uh, to doing something about border security. But what we must do is keep people safe, keep travel going. We cannot close down our airports and we cannot subject travelers uh, to unsafe uh, conditions. And we should keep our federal employees happy, keep them uh, in a positive way so that they can do their jobs and the country continue, can continue to move forward. It, it, that's not a hard thing for him to do. Right. But he needs to sit down uh, with Hakeem Jeffries and ham out those agreements. So Politico is reporting uh, that Matt Gates, Congressman Matt Gates, uh, is reaching out to House Democrats uh, to solicit their help to, ha- to oust McCarthy from the speakership. Um, I-, I guess he's reaching out to people in the Progressive Caucus. I assume you have not heard from Gates. Um, <laughs> but what would you say uh, to any of your fellow do- Democrats who are uh, working with Gates um, to, uh, to get rid of McCarthy? Well, I'd, I'd like to know what it is that he thinks we'll get out of getting rid of McCarthy. Uh, what do we get for that? Uh, I would much rather us look at what the country needs. Let's look at whether or not we can do a bipartisan continuing resolution, if not a bipartisan funding bill for the next Congress. And let that uh, be our uh, North Star, not whether or not we protect his politics is whether or not we protect the people of the country. So if you're going to do something uh, in a bipartisan way, let it be doing what the people need rather than what uh, the politics uh, of Matt Gates dictate. He is being political and no Democrat 
conservative or uh, moderate or liberal or progressive, we aren't going to play that game. I don't think you'll get anybody on our side to play it with him. Uh, before we go, sir, uh, as a trailblazer yourself, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the passing of uh, another trailblazer, uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California. Oh, yes, I do. I didn't know her personally. I have interacted with her uh, on more than one occasion. I always found her uh, to be a great person to work with, a person uh, of her uh, of honor. And I remember how she get, got into politics. Uh, uh, those uh, tumultuous days uh, in California uh, and the kind of things that she worked on were things that are very near and dear to me, uh, assault wiper, uh, rifles and that kind of stuff. Uh, she was just a great person uh, for California and for the nation as well. All right, Democratic Congressman James Clyburn, thanks so much. Coming up next, new information just in about that first guilty plea in the Georgia election subversion case. We could see one of the co-defendants testify, plus a culture of abuse and corruption that may date back 150 years. The entire Baton Rouge Police Department in Louisiana now under fire after lawsuits revealed alleged strip searches and a suspect sexually humiliated inside a warehouse known as a brave cave. But the allegations go much, much wider. Some breaking news tops our law and justice lead. The first Trump co-defendant to plead guilty in the Georgia election case has agreed to testify in any future proceedings and trials as part of his plea deal. His name is Scott Hall, and he pleaded guilty to five counts. He will avoid jail time. Donald Trump and 17 others are also facing charges in this case related to efforts to try to overturn the results of the 2020 election in the state and steal Georgia's electoral votes. Joining us now are CNN's Caitlin Polance and Jessica Schneider. Jessica, walk us through uh, the details of the plea deal. Yeah, the first guilty plea in this Georgia case. Now. And there will be more, I bet. There will be. This is the first of many. So he pleaded guilty to five misdemeanors, all related to his interference uh, with the, the voting systems in Coffee County. So what that means, he has to pay a fine. There'll be five years of probation. He also has to write a letter of apology. But crucially, part of this plea deal is that he has agreed to testify truthfully in any proceedings related to this case, including trials. So that will inevitably make some of the other defendants here maybe think about what they need to do, whether they need to uh, plead guilty, agree to a plea deal with prosecutors. I mean, this is this is a turning point for sure um, pretty early on. Yeah. And Fulton County prosecutors also signaled today they could offer plea deals to former Trump campaign lawyer Sidney Powell, uh, who uh, is um, I think Donald Trump even said she was crazy, crazy. Uh, And uh, Kenneth Chesbro of Wisconsin, the alleged mastermind behind the fake electors scheme. Um, what do you think is the likelihood that Powell or Chesbro might take those plea deals? I mean, well, so far their attorneys are signaling that they won't. They're, they're digging in their heels, that they are mounting this defense. I mean, Chesbro's attorney at one point said, these charges need to be dropped. That's the only way that we're not going to trial here, indicating that they will not take a plea deal. But of course, um, the developments today in Georgia with Scott Hall, it really does put the begin to put the pressure on. And of course, the more defendants that agree to these plea deals, perhaps the more pressure. But we're just a few weeks away from Chesbro and Powell, the start of their trial that started. So there's not much time left. Yeah. And Caitlin, former Justice Department official Jeffrey Clark, he was the one that Trump was thinking about appointing temporary uh, acting attorney general. And he was then going to tell states 
to overturn the results. Georgia especially. Georgia especially. Yeah. He was denied. Uh, he wanted to move his case from Georgia to, to federal court. He was denied that, similar to what happened to uh, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows earlier this month. Yeah, he's still a part of a line of people who are trying to do that, that had a connection to the federal government and wanted to just get the case in a place that might be a little bit more friendly, which he thought was federal court. It's not going to happen for him. Right now, Mark Meadows has um, a, an appeal on the table where the federal system is going to look at whether he can move his case. But what we're seeing happening here with Mark Meadows before the trial judge asking for that, not getting that relief, with Jeff Clark, and then also there are some fake electors that also made a bid that is a pretty long shot to move the case out of state court. With all of these people, we're seeing the pieces of the trial in Fulton County, Georgia, come into place, that there is going to be a trial set with jury selection to begin at the end of October. That's the Chesbro Powell trial. And then there are other defendants that are going to have to make decisions, just like Scott Hall did today because the cases aren't getting split up in a lot of different ways. They're not getting moved into different court systems. And the reason that Clark wasn't able to move his case today when the judge looked at it, it was that he didn't have any evidence to be able to make the claim that what he was doing was part of his job at the Justice Department to try and look into an election in Georgia. He didn't present evidence to that. And even when his attorney tried to argue that it's plausible that Donald Trump told him to do these things as the as the president overseeing a man in the Justice Department is an administration. There was no evidence to that effect, too. And so that's going to be ultimately an evidence question that will very likely come up at trial. Yeah, the judge really shot that down. He said yeah. this was no part of your job at all. You were assistant attorney general for the civil division and the energy and natural resources. It, you should not have been doing this. It turns out, regardless of what these guys think about the election, that evidence actually matters. It does. A grand irony. Imagine that. Imagine that, Caitlin and Jessica. Thanks so much. Then there's Donald Trump himself. What is he telling supporters as his legal cases continue to stack up? Plus, only in Los Angeles would someone want to demolish the house that belonged to Marilyn Monroe because they want the real estate. The fight to keep it standing ahead. Yeah, the 2024 lead. We got the music going. Just moments ago, former President Trump took the stage in front of California Republicans to firm up support for his 2024 bid. This is two days after he skipped out uh, out of uh, sharing the stage with seven of his rivals at the second Republican debate. Trump isn't the only presidential candidate there. Senator Tim Scott, Governor Ron DeSantis, and Vivek Ramaswamy will also attend. CNN's Kyung La is at the Republican State Convention in Anaheim, California, where President Trump is still giving the keynote address. Kyung, uh, it sounds like the speech is being received well, yes? Well, he is still speaking. He has uh, been going about uh, about 30 minutes or so, Jake, and no doubt about it. You heard it from the applause yourself. He is absolutely popular in this room. But let's zoom out and give you a bit of perspective on what's happening here in the state. The Republican Party statewide here in the state of California is desperately seeking relevance in uh, the next election. So the last time 
Republicans were able to elect someone statewide here in California, Democratic stronghold, was in 2006. If you look at the voting data in this state from the Secretary of State, the latest that I could find, just under half of all registered voters are Democrats, 24% are Republican, and 23% are independent. So this room can cheer, it can applaud Donald Trump because he is a popular figure, no doubt. But for the party leaders who are looking for relevance to win statewide, uh, there is some concern that the they have to have independence. They've got to have Democrats if they want to win in the state statewide. Jake. The state party there is debating a rule change on the distribution of delegates during the primary. Uh, what is that change about? How might it affect uh, the winner? Uh, so this is something that the state party has decided. So. What the rule change is, is that anyone who is 50 plus one, and that's a change. Let me go back and, t and tell you, the, the previous was a breakdown by percentage of win, but now it's going to be winner take all if you are 50 plus one. And that is 169 delegates. So certainly moving up the calendar to Super Tuesday, having that high number of delegates available, it makes California very relevant, especially this, this uh, election for the Republicans. All right, Kyung Long, California, thanks so much. Let's bring in uh, my panel. Uh, Lonnie Chen, I want to start with you because you're the Californian uh, here. Uh, David Frum offered this assessment on Wednesday night's debate in California uh, and the other seven Republican candidates vying to be an alternative to Trump. He said, quote, Republican primary voters don't care about policy. What they want is a proven record of violent sedition, sexual assault, and financial fraud. Uh, obviously, uh, that is uh, harsh and uh, snarky, um, but uh, it is hard to escape the fact that it looks very strongly as though Donald Trump will be the nominee. Nobody's voted yet, but polls suggest very strongly as of now, it looks like Donald Trump is still heavily favored. Yeah, and you really cannot uh, emphasize enough how that rule change in California is going to help him with that. If he reaches that 50% threshold in California, that's a lot of delegates he's winning. He gets but, them all. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, um, there's a lot of enthusiasm for him right now. Uh, I spent a whole year, year and a half campaigning up and down the state of California as a statewide candidate there last year. I got to see it firsthand. The people really believe that he is the person who ought to carry this mantle forward. Even people who have some doubts and misgivings about the legal issues, the personal issues, uh, they see him as a strong standard bearer. So I'm not surprised to see 1,700 people in that ballroom today. I want to say that's three or four times more than Ron DeSantis has attracted later today when he speaks, a lot more than when Tim Scott's there, certainly more than... Vivek Ramaswamy. So uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of interest, notwithstanding all of what uh, Mr. Frum pointed out in his tweet. <laughs> um, David uh, Urban, uh, you worked for Trump in 2016. Um, polls indicate that Nikki Haley, the former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor, would beat Joe Biden decisively and that every other candidate, it's, a, it's basically just a margin, margin of error race. Um, and yet the party seems very committed as of now. Again, anything could change to very committed. But I mean, we talked about this with Salty Sanderson a few days ago. Like she says, it's a one in 10 chance that Trump does not get the nomination. I remember what you said. Um, um, <laughs> she, she's smart. She's the pollster. But but why? I mean, when there is this yeah. alternative right there that is younger, that is a fresher face and that according to data has a better chance of winning. Yeah, People love Donald Trump, right? There are people that you... you 
social media, you go to rallies, you talk to people, you pull in a gas station, you get in an Uber, right? The, the, the guy occupies everybody's consciousness from when they wake up to when you go to bed. People and, can't escape Donald Trump. Is, I'm not quite sure why. But well, it, I a can't minority of Americans like No, no, him. in the party. I'm saying yeah, the Republican yeah, party, yeah. right? No, I'm not talking about America writ large. Right. Well, he I mean, does not, occupy a lot of time in Democrats' yeah, brains, yeah, but for different yeah. reasons. <laughs> but in California, we're, we're going to get waxed in California, right? right? Republicans are going get, to get drubbed statewide. But, you know, winning these votes is very important. And, and as Lonnie said, they had 1,700 folks in this arena. This, these are big numbers, right? Sure. These are big numbers. I remember when I campaigned with Rick Santorum in 2012 for president, we were getting 1,000 people in a gym, and we thought it was giant. We were blown away. It had never been seen before, right? You used to get small people in diners. And Trump's just he's changed the political dynamic, yeah, political discourse, been, because he's fighting for people. He's fighting for average Americans. Well, and also he's been a celebrity for decades. Yeah, and it, but, but you know what? That doesn't work so much. Look at Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania, right? Mehmet Oz is wildly popular, a, a, a celebrity, and he got crushed in a primary. Excuse me, got crushed in a general election to... Uh, a guy who wears shorts and a hoodie to work, right? So, Well, many Pennsylvanians wear shorts to hoodies, and actually many people <laughs> like myself do that in our off hours. But when you look not at California work. in that room, not to work, um, <laughs> soccer mom in a couple of minutes. But uh, when you look at that room, it's not just the numbers of potential voters. They're looking for money, too, which is why these other, let's call them tier two and three candidates, are there, too. And that's going to be their ongoing challenge is how can they sustain the money that it takes yeah. to run for office when your margins are so wide? So is your ego really going to keep you going on every debate stage. How do you make up for that, knowing that there is a limited pool of voters that you have to appeal to? Kristen, I read this story and I immediately wanted to know what you thought about it. So there's this conservative anti-Trump group called the Political Action Committee, Win It Back. Um, <laughs> I think David McIntosh. Yeah, from Club for Growth. Yeah. So Club for Growth. It spent $6 million in Iowa and South Carolina to try to damage Trump's standing with Republican voters. Ads such as this one. I would have to say that Donald Trump did a great job. I always supported him. I supported him in the 16 and I supported him in the 20 election, but I didn't like his response to COVID. I thought he probably uh, got led a little bit by the bureaucrats. So that's one approach. You know, he, that, and that's kind of like an approach that DeSantis has taken. Oh, he followed Fauci down, blah, blah, blah. Um, they've tried a whole bunch of different approaches uh, to go after him, trying to appeal to Republicans, trying to appeal to conservatives. The New York Times reports that this memo from this group from the head of the pack says, after more than 40 different anti-Trump TV ads, quote, all attempts to undermine his conservative credentials on specific issues were ineffective. And in fact, <laughs> in at least one of them, his popularity went up. So $6 million is a lot of money and it's not working at all. Attempts to persuade Republican voters that Donald Trump is not conservative and therefore you shouldn't vote for him were just have been dead on arrival. The one message that had a chance to work was right after the midterms right. saying, just like in that ad, start off with a guy who says, I like Donald Trump. I'm not hostile to Trump voters. I am a Trump voter, but I'm worried he's not the guy to win in 2024. Yeah. And there was a window when that could have worked. But now there are enough polls showing Trump and Biden neck and neck. That window's so, so I think that the message that could have worked that Kristen points out correctly is the loser. You're a loser. You lost in 18. You lost. We got killed in the midterms. You lost in 20. You lost in 22. 22. You're going to lose in 24. You're a loser. You haven't won, right? And, I and, think that would have been sticky. And here's where Biden comes in because he's running a general election right now. And he jumps in in Arizona at the McCain Institute talking about his relationship with a stalwart Republican, how they used to work democracy of old together. And he's selling a message of 
he won, and America's democracy is under threat. Every time somebody comes uh, under indictment or uh, decides to cut a plea deal, that is something that appeals not only to Democrats, but also to the vast majority of Americans, nearly 50%, who do not identify with a political party. Meanwhile, Lonnie, I want to bring in the fact that Mediate is reporting that Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who was running against uh, President Biden in the Democratic Party primary, uh, he uh, is now considering running as an independent. Yeah. Um, what do you think? Do you think that that actually could have an effect? And would he hurt Biden or might he hurt Trump? Well, we're more likely to have probably a three or four way race than we are to have a non-Trump candidate as a Republican nominee. If you look at whether it's uh, you know, Robert Kennedy coming out and doing his own thing. You've got this no labels candidate potentially that could be another possibly Jim Manchin. We don't know. Yeah. And I mean, that's a more likely scenario. And we can debate sort of who they take share from. But if you've got Robert F. Kennedy and you've got a candidate that, let's argue, is center right. Well, you got Cornell West also. Then, then, then it's interesting. West. And then it becomes an interesting dynamic. So I've looked at data around this. And on the one hand, you would assume actually that RFK, because he's doing really poorly in Democratic primary polls, would maybe actually pull more Republican voters. His message on things like vaccines, he's got this more populist kind of message. But the data that I've seen suggests he kind of pulls equally from both sides. So at the moment, I think his influence would be a little bit unclear if a wash. Doesn't clearly benefit one side or the other. All right, other. thanks one and all. Appreciate it. Uh, there's a lot going on today. You've likely seen the alerts about Tupac Shakur murder arrest. I'll speak with a detective who spent years investigating the case. That's next. And uh, we're back. Uh, Tell us how you really feel is the phrase that comes to mind. Departing Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman General Mark Milley calling out his former boss, Donald Trump, today. Not particularly subtle. Take a listen. We are unique among the world's armies. We are unique among the world's militaries. We don't take an oath to a country. We don't take an oath to a tribe. We don't take an oath to a religion. We don't take an oath to a king or a queen or to a tyrant or a dictator. And we don't take an oath to a wannabe dictator. We don't take an oath to a wannabe dictator. This pointed remark after Trump suggested that Milley should be executed for treason. A remark Trump made just a few days ago to the deafening silence of Republicans in the House and Senate. Nearly 30 years ago, after Tupac Shakur was murdered in a drive-by shooting on the Las Vegas Strip, police have finally arrested someone in connection to the crime. Dwayne Davis, a.k.a. Keefe D., is now in Las Vegas police custody after police searched his house in mid-July as part of their ongoing investigation, where they found a memoir authored by Davis with a suspicious level of detail about the 25-year-old hip-hop icon's untimely death. Let's get right to Greg Kading, a retired Los Angeles police detective who spent years investigating the Tupac Shakur murder and wrote a book about it. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, So Davis has been on law enforcement's radar for years. He was outspoken about having been at the the scene of the crime. Why do you think it was so hard to finally pin him down? Well, we knew about Davis all the way back from his initial confession to law enforcement. We sat him down back in 2009 and he confessed to his role in the murder along with other co-conspirators. 
conversation, he had what was known as a proffer agreement. So we couldn't utilize that information, the incriminating information that he was providing against him. But then he began to go out and publicly boast about his involvement in the murder. And that led to law enforcement in Las Vegas um, taking another look at his claims. And ultimately, he's just talked himself right into jail. So we've known about his confession for since 2009. We knew about his involvement. Um, and now it's come to fruition because of all the public statements he's made. Are those statements enough? I mean, does there need to be more evidence beyond those statements? Could they not be uh, just explained away in a trial uh, as false braggadocio? No, we substantiated during our original um, interview with him. He, we substantiated nearly every single thing he said during that interview. So we knew it was a bona fide confession. And then the things he continued to say were just reiterating that confession. So he's, he's essentially, you know, he's noosed himself and hung himself with this one. So it's, it's great to finally see um, this case come to a point where somebody's being held accountable for the murder. This afternoon, police said the investigation was, quote, far from over. What is left to look into? What remains? We've got to take him to trial if he chooses to go to trial. Um, so it's going to be really interesting how they how they work this out legally when you have the primary witness against the defendant is the defendant himself. So this is going to be very unique in, 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 in the legal realm. How do you prosecute this? Um, so it, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's, it's going to be intriguing. But essentially, we know that Davis is the last man standing um, in, for those that were responsible for Tupac Shakur's murder. And uh, it's, it's great to see the case finally get closed. It's no longer a mystery from the public's perception. We've known it for years, but uh, it's always been a matter of it's not what you know, it's what you can prove. Indeed. Greg Kading, thanks so much. Appreciate you joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up next, an unbelievable story developing in Louisiana. The entire Baton Rouge Police Department under fire over an alleged horror in a so-called Brave Cave. Stay with us. In our Law and Justice lead, the scrutiny of Louisiana's Baton Rouge Police just got even more intense. We told you last week about allegations against the department's use of a warehouse, never a good development, the so-called Brave Cave, where some members of a now disbanded street crimes unit allegedly tortured and strip-searched suspects. Troy Lawrence Jr., one of the officers accused of committing such crimes, was arrested last week, and now his father, Deputy Chief Troy Lawrence Sr., and three other ranking officers have also been arrested on multiple criminal charges. CNN's Ryan Young is tracking this all for us. Ryan, what are these officers accused of doing? Well, they're accused of violating policy, Jake, and it comes down to a tasing incident that happened back in 2020. Apparently, somebody was arrested. They were brought to a police building, and inside this police building, they decided to do a search of him. And then when the search happened, uh, officers used a taser to try to get the man to comply. And at some point, something dropped from the man's body. But what they didn't realize at the time was the taser actually activated body cameras that the officers were wearing. And at some point, according to the chief of police, uh, someone watched the app and saw that maybe they violated policy. Well, that body camera apparently was destroyed. 
and tried to destroy it. They made sure it wasn't connected to a server. So that's why four officers were arrested to, uh, this morning in connection with this. But when you think about this, you add the Brave Cave to this. People are astounded about what may have been going on in Baton Rouge. There's been talk about nine separate uh, administrative investigations. The FBI is looking into this. And there's a federal lawsuit. There was a grandmother who says that she was uh, had a cavity search, a body cavity search, and she was strip searched after she had prescription drugs on her after being pulled over. There's so many questions about this, but the mayor is trying to make a clear point, Jake, that they've tried to shut down these activities now that they come to light. Take a listen. To put it in terms that you can relate to, this is not a time for just an annual checkup. This is time for a full body MRI to diagnose and reveal any dysfunctions or wrongdoings. Jake, I've talked to community members who are desperately hoping that the federal government also steps in to do a review of this police department because they believe there is more that they need to get to the bottom of. All right, Ryan Young, thanks so much. We have some breaking news for you now. An IRS contractor is accused of stealing the tax returns of Donald Trump. Details are just coming in. We're going to squeeze in a quick break. We'll be back next. And now the breaking news I told you about. An IRS contractor has been charged, accused of stealing Donald Trump's tax returns and giving them to members of the press. CNN's Evan Pettis joins us live. Evan, what do we know about these allegations and charges. Well, uh, Jake, this is uh, an IRS contractor. His name is uh, Charles Littlejohn. He worked for the IRS uh, from 2018 to 2020. And according to to prosecutors, he's now being charged uh, with uh, disseminating the uh, tax information of Donald Trump uh, and additionally stealing the uh, tax information of thousands of Americans, including the richest Americans, and uh, providing that to a news organization. Now, in both cases, uh, the the stealing of Donald Trump's information as well as the, 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 the wealthy individuals in this country, both were passed to two different news organizations which published articles about it. Now, uh, the, right now, the, uh, the, uh, the, the Justice Department says that this is a, this is a, uh, a, a charge that could, take up to, could carry up to five years in prison if he is convicted, Jake. All right, Evan Perez, thank you so much. And I know you'll have more on that story uh, in the Situation Room coming up. The pop culture lead now in the asphalt jungle of Los Angeles, a clash by night and day over a house in which actress Marilyn Monroe lived. She died as well in that same house. CNN's Nick Watt explains. Marilyn Monroe made the Brentwood bungalow at issue today her home. And city councilwoman Tracy Park sported a hair and makeup homage for her fight to save that home. This was the only home she ever owned And it's the home where she tragically died 61 years ago last month. One of the most famous stars in Hollywood history is dead at 36. Marilyn Monroe was found dead in bed under circumstances that were in tragic contrast to her glamorous career as a comic talent. An overdose, the coroner said it was probably suicide, more than a year after the release of her final film, The Misfits. What makes you so sad? This man never said that. I'm usually told how happy I am. The house, a near 100-year-old hacienda on half an acre, sold in August for over $8 million. The new owners, who apparently also own the house next door, applied for a permit, a demolition permit. Here in L.A., 
People love to knock stuff down. It is part of the story of L.A. L.A. is always reinventing itself. If you can't see, uh, sometimes touch the place, visit the place, the history, the story, the people connected to it are just less real. For now, the demo permit is paused while city officials debate giving this house historic protected status. Why shouldn't they be allowed to do what they want with what they bought? Even if it is ultimately designated as an historic cultural monument, you can add on to it, you can make modifications. It could still be living, breathing, changing, but still be there to help tell the story of Marilyn Monroe. Monroe fans, conservationists and the councilwoman are confident they can save this suburban slice of Hollywood history. To her and to us, this residence is more than just a brick-and-mortar structure. It is a symbol of her journey. Now, the new owners of this property, they've been keeping a very low profile, but I did manage to track them down, got a text message out of them which reads, we are optimistic that we will be able to work with the city and Councilwoman Park to reach an agreement that recognizes Marilyn Monroe's legacy, uh, but also respects our neighbors and reflects our hopes and concerns. So let's see what happens. Jake? Nick, t tell us what kind of neighborhood that is, quickly, if you could. I mean, very nice neighborhood. Lo lovely big country club that way. Lots of rich and famous live around here. And the economics of it, that house I mentioned sold for a little over eight million. Only about one point something million of that is actually the house. Six plus million is the land. Land around here is very valuable. And that is why here in L.A., in this part of L.A., people love to knock stuff down. Yeah, Jake. I'll bet. Nick Watt, thanks so much. Coming up Sunday, which will be day one of the latest U.S. government shutdown, I'll speak live with one of those being blamed for the shutdown, Republican Congressman Matt Gates of Florida. That's Sunday morning on State of the Union at 9 o'clock Eastern and again at noon. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you Sunday morning. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.